1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 7. Verse 7. And we'll read down to verse 11, which really comprises the last section of this particular passage in the epistle. You can tell that by the word amen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Let's hear God's word. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Please bow your head with me for a moment and let's all seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we do come now to the throne because we need grace and mercy. We ask in Jesus Christ's name for the infilling of the Spirit of God. Our thoughts, our words will be under his control. It'll be a word anointed with God's power, and it'll be a word received with meekness in the souls of those that listen, all that Christ might be glorified. In his name we pray, amen and amen. Peter continues to instruct and exhort these Christians in the early church about no longer living for the lust of men, but living for the will of God. It's as much needed a message now as it was then. Christians being instructed and exhorted not to live to satisfy the lusts of the flesh, but to live for the will of God. Last Thursday morning, we saw Peter giving them certain motives for living that kind of a life, that that holy life, that, that life separate from the world and separated unto God, for living like Christ, who died unto sin and now liveth unto God. Romans chapter 6. He died unto sin, but now liveth unto God. From, from one standpoint, it seems a strange thing that Christians need to be given motives to keep turning from sin and keep turning to God. When you stop and think of all the damage, all the hurt, all the sorrows that sin has caused us, you would think that we wouldn't need to be given any more motives at all to hate evil and love righteousness. Sin 
blinded us from seeing our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. Sin left us death so that we were unable to hear God speak to us through his word. And it was sin that led us down that broad road that would end up in hell. And sin is that which has made our hearts deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But even after Christ saved us, even after Christ has pardoned all of our sin, we've all experienced the power of sin to wreck and to ruin our happiness, our usefulness to God, and our ability to glorify God in our lives. And yet, we can all sympathize with that hymn writer when he wrote, Oh, how the world to evil allures me. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. Do we need to be given motives to live for God's will and not live for the flesh? You better believe we need motives. And we need them continually. Yet the motives must be the right motives. And so I said last week, right motives for right living. That was my theme. It must be right motives. I said that because God's people have often been given wrong motives to be holy by well-meaning preachers, by their own troubled conscience. Using guilt to motivate believers to obey God is about as anti-gospel as you can get. It is about as opposed to the process, the way that God sanctifies his people as you'll ever find on the face of the earth. All of God's motives to move his people to be holy, to not live to the flesh, but to live for the will of God, are grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not about the guilt of our sin. The gospel is about freedom from the guilt of our sins and our failures through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. That is the great foundation. That's the bedrock for all the motives we find in Scripture to live a life pleasing to God and to turn away from sin. That flies in the face of using guilt. You see, what, what guilt does... And, that, and that's why Peter has, if you remember, these first three chapters, and this fourth one even, Peter's been making much mention of the death of Christ, of the, the blood of the Lamb of God, a Lamb without blemish and without spot, all in his arguments for living holy lives. But guilt, you see, guilt produces fear. It's fear-based motivation. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Not producing true holiness, true likeness to Christ, fear-based motivation. Guilt produces fear. It's the fear of being condemned by God. Fear of being rejected. It's a fear-based motivation that runs completely counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ that assures every believer that he will never, ever be condemned by God that he will never be rejected by the Lord. 
In fact, the gospel says he's loved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with an everlasting and an unchanging love. That's that's the great motivation for holy living. To take the words of Isaac Watts, who called it quite well, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Or as C.T. Studd put it, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice should be too great for me to make for him. That's gospel. That's gospel motivation to live a holy life. Not guilt motivation, but gospel motivation. Now that is the foundation of all that Peter has been laying down so far as motivating them to live in the midst of their circumstances, in the midst of their troubles and trials and tribulations, to live a life that pleases God and not the flesh. We saw last week, included in those motives for godly living was reminding them of what their life was like before the Lord saved them. Don't forget that, he says, what, how you lived your life before God saved you, what he saved you out of. He reminded them of how the ungodly reacted to their obedience to the Lord. They thought they're weird, they're strange, because they don't want to run with them anymore. Remember that, he says. That's what they think about your Christ. That's what they think about this gospel. And thirdly, the fact is that payday is coming. Both for the ungodly who mock them and judge them, but also for them when they'll be rewarded. It's that last thought that leads Peter to give them a fourth and final motive for holy living in this section that runs to verse 11. After speaking of that day when God is going to judge the quick and the dead, Peter says in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, What follows the therefore is a description of how the Lord's people are to live for the will of God. I will borrow an old well-known phrase as the title of my message because I think it actually sums up what Peter is saying in this last section. It's about living in light of eternity. Living in light of eternity. All things, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, live like this. Living in the light of eternity. In the first place, this motivation to live in the light of eternity means the end of time and our entrance into eternity, calls us to live a holy life. The end of time and our entrance into eternity call us to live a holy life. That phrase, the end of all things is at hand, literally reads, the end of all things is drawing near. The end of time is drawing near. Well, it's been well over 2,000 years since Peter wrote those words, and the end of time hasn't come. Did he somehow misread the prophetic calendar? 
Did the Holy Ghost get it wrong? When he moved him to write the end of all things, is at hand, <clears throat> drawing near. How could he say it was near? I think perhaps John Calvin explains it the best. He, I quote him, The time seems long to us because we measure its length by the spaces of this fleeting life. But if we could understand the perpetuity of future life, many ages would appear to us like a moment It is this same apostle, you recall, who wrote in his second epistle. He made this very point in the context of the end of the age. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So by my calculations, that would make the two thousand years since Peter wrote this verse equivalent to two days. explaining why he would say that the end of time is drawing near. Two days ago. In urging them to live holy lives, Peter is reminding them that this life at best, is very, very brief. That is, you know, one of the oft-recurring arguments in Scripture to live a life that pleases God, the brevity of life. Psalm 90, Psalm written by Moses, he's recounting the the many deaths that took place in the wilderness wanderings, most believe it was written at the end of his life. And he's looking back on the history of Israel as so many graveyards were created because of the disobedience, the, the rebellion of God's people. Every time they broke camp, they left behind a graveyard. And he's remembering that. And he's comparing man's life as like a, the grass of the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So he says, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to number our days, that we might live to please God. Teach us that our days are numbered, they're very brief. Three score years and ten, even if we live four score, yet is their strength, their best of them, marked by labor and sorrow. We're not here for long. So, Lord, teach us that our life is brief. James takes up that argument. The fact of the brevity of life to check, to check the worldly attitude that was being found among believers who were saying... Today or tomorrow, we're going to such and such a city, and we're going to set up shop, and we're going to buy and sell, and we're going to make a lot of money. It all planned out. 
Verse 14, chapter 4, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. You're living like you're going to live forever. It's here for a little time. He's using that that they might live to please God and not the flesh. Your time here is very short. One of the traps that Christians fall into is the thought that they've got a long life ahead of them. It's hard to convince young people that they don't. The older I get, the more I realize my life is so short. It's so brief. I'm only here for a little bit. To think that you've got your whole life ahead of you. Got plenty of time. Is, as Calvin put it, a false thought. It's a false thought. It's believing a lie. My life is as a handbreadth, David said. Just a handbreadth. We all joke, and the older you get, the more you joke about old age. But really, our lives have been so brief. And when you believe that lie of the devil, that false thought, it's, it, it can easily lead to, to carelessness, to apathy with regards to living for God. I've got plenty of time. Forgetting that the end of all things is drawing near makes you forget that all that the world uses to call you away from living for the will of God is going to soon come to an end. It's all going to end. Soon. Even the good things of life can keep us away from the best things if we don't hold those good things very loosely. How tightly do you hold on to the things of time? I can answer that question for you. It's how upset you get when those things are taken away. If it shatters your world and you feel like you just cannot go on because some temporal thing, a thing of time, has been lost, you've got a way too firm a hold on that which is going to end. Loosely hold them. 
One of the ways by which we have a loose hold on the things of time that can so often come between us and the Lord is to remember they're going to perish. It's all going to go away. So why live for them? Why make them so important to us? Why, why allow them to take us away from the thing that's really most needful? And that is that I live my life to the glory of the Lord. I live for the kingdom of God and its advancement. Calvin wrote, it is then... It is then no wonder that the cares of this world overwhelm us and make us drowsy if the view of present things dazzles our eyes. For we promise, almost all of us, an eternity to ourselves in this world. At least, the end never comes to our mind. We just don't think about it. So Peter's message is like that of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools. Walking circumspectly is walking wisely, walking in a way that pleases God. That's the context of what he's about to say. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Redeem means to purchase, to buy up, to, to redeem, to rescue from bondage. So in this context of walking circumspectly, Paul tells them to buy up the time, to rescue, to recover our time from waste, to use the time, and it's so brief, to use the time that we have for greater things, the greater things that we need to do. That's living wisely, and that's walking circumspectly. Knowing that we only have a brief opportunity. Wasted years need to be redeemed. The end of all things is at hand. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You think about it. Put everything in the balance with that. Only what we do for Christ will last. Not only does the end of time call us to holy living, but so does what comes after it. Eternity. In Peter's second epistle, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he says, What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation, that's conduct, and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? You see, this passage is living in light of eternity. And the, the ungodly are those who only think in terms of the here and now, of this life, of this world, of time and sense. They are living for this, and that's all they have to live for. And you know it by how they live their lives. 
It's all about now, the moment. But the child of God, and, and, and let me remind you, this is in the context of right thinking. The child of God has a different way of looking at things. He has a completely different worldview. Holy living is about living a life that counts for eternity. It's not about living a life that only matters in time. What I can accomplish in this world, in time. eternity. Solomon tried it all. And when it was all said and done, I've tried everything. It's vanity. It's empty. Secondly, when we live in light of eternity, We will maintain fellowship with God and with God's people. We will maintain fellowship with God and God's people. We will maintain fellowship with God. And I won't get beyond that. We will maintain fellowship with God. Verse 7, the last half, he says, Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now it appears at first glance that Peter is referring to two separate duties. Be sober and watch unto prayer. But it could as easily be translated so that both sober and watch have reference to the word prayer. Right? So that Peter is saying, be sober and watchful for the purpose of or unto prayer. Be sober and watchful for the purpose, for the sake of prayer. Be sober, literally, be of a sound mind. No surprise here. Remember, uh, arm your mind with this thought, he says. You're thinking. He says, be sober, be of a sound mind. It's the same word that's used in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 15, of that maniac of Gadara, who after the Lord saved him was found sitting at his feet, clothed and in his right mind. That's the word. Sober. He was anything but sober minded when he was controlled by demons, but salvation has changed all of that, and now he's thinking rightly. His mind is sobered up. He's thinking clearly. He's not mad anymore. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. It's the same word. 
In other words, if you have a higher opinion of yourself than is warranted, it's insanity. It's not sober thinking. It's as if you are intoxicated with pride. And you think you're the best thing since sliced bread and no one can compare to you. He says, listen, don't do that. That's not sober thinking. Don't think of yourselves higher than you ought. But think, think soberly. Think sober-minded. He used to think sound, sound thoughts about himself. To think sane thoughts... And sound and sane and sober thoughts are found in minds that have been instructed by God's truth. It's the mind instructed by the truth of God's word that has correct thinking, that has sound thoughts. It's the thoughts of God. Isn't that what we're after? Thinking like God. I realize there's going to be a limitation to that one. But that does not prevent for one moment us to understand that we are far, far better off than thinking the thoughts of God than thinking the thoughts of men. God's thoughts. And those thoughts are revealed to us in this book. His truth. Joshua, you remember... Lord Moses commissioned him, God speaking to this as he becomes the leader at Moses' death. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. The word of the Lord controlling your thoughts. You control your thoughts. You control your actions. It's what Paul was all about when he wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell. Not a visitor now and then, but a, a, a dweller, that which abides in you and abides in you richly and deeply. It's God's word, it's his truth that guards and protects our minds from wrong thinking. And keeps them focused on spiritual things. Without it, we lose the focus. Our focus becomes on temporal things, the here and now. We lose our way. A sound mind, sober-mindedness, sane thinking, isn't given over, therefore, to wild thoughts or fits of passion. It goes dead against that. It's sober. It's sane. 
It stayed on God. And that's a spirit-controlled mind. The word watch, be sober and watch, it's really a very, very similar word. You, you realize it's so similar that four times in the authorized version, it's translated by the phrase, be sober. The idea is that of being soberly vigilant, of being alert, having a clear head, not drowsy, not intoxicated. Sober is a great word, you know, because alcohol makes you drowsy. And you are anything but alert and watchful when you're under the influence of alcohol. Likewise, a Christian can be intoxicated with the world, intoxicated with the world's cares and the world's pursuits and the world's pleasures and interests. They can leave him drowsy, sleepy, unwatchful, an easy prey for the attack of the devil. So when you put these two words together, because that's why I'm spending the time doing this now, you put these two words together, Peter is saying that clear, sane, godly, biblical thinking walks hand in hand with spiritual alertness, spiritual watchfulness. And what we, what we must not fail to see is that both of those terms are connected to prayer. Both of those terms are connected to fellowship with God. And all of this in the context of holy living. Sound-mindedness and spiritual alertness are necessary for prayer. The more spiritually minded you are, the more spiritually alert you are, the more you're going to have uh, uh, power in the place of prayer. The more prayerful you're going to be. Likewise, the less spiritually minded you are, the less sane thinking you are, the less your thoughts are controlled by God's word is truth, the less watchful you're going to be when it comes to prayer. And that's ultimate reality here. It's fellowship with God. And where we are, where we are there, says everything about how sane our thinking is. How watchful we are, how spiritually alert we are, how aware we are when it comes to fellowship with God. Living in light of eternity means that you maintain a life of fellowship, of communion with God. Living in light of eternity, it automatically 
calls for that. Because it's God's eternity we're going into. You know, the fact of the matter is holy living grows out of communion with a holy God. But when our mind is cluttered and our thoughts are not governed by the Word of God, when our thinking is skewed by listening to the world, by listening to the world's worldview, which is not informed, which is not instructed by the Word of God, but by a depraved heart, an understanding that is darkened by sin. When we listen, then we're not going to be spiritually alert when it comes to prayer. We're just not going to be. We're not going to be clearly thinking when it comes to communion with God. And indeed, what will end up happening, our own prayer life will be very undisciplined and unbalanced because our thinking is undisciplined and unbalanced. Always comes back to the mind, doesn't it? Your actions, the worship, the praying, the praising, the holiness always comes back to the mind. What's controlling our thoughts? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart, as involving not simply the emotions, but the understanding in the mind. Everything comes. Our communion with God, if we don't live in light of eternity, and therefore our thinking is not sober, and we don't have a spiritual vigilance and watchfulness and alertness, then I promise you, your communion and my communion with God will be haphazard and hindered. It will be haphazard and hindered. It will be scattered. Scattered. Because our thinking will be scattered. You ever had an experience raising children? And they do something that to you is incredulous. Just incredulous. Have you asked the question in the heat of frustration, what in the world were you thinking? A 
obvious they weren't thinking. Not sober thoughts. That would have prevented the action. You think about living in light of eternity and dwelling in communion with God. If, if we would look upon our uh, prayer life that is haphazard, that is scattered here and there, as a little bit here, a little bit there, there's no maintaining of fellowship with God, wouldn't the question be, what in the world are you thinking? What are you thinking? Can we actually have sober thoughts, sane thoughts, and be watchful under prayer? If our mind is not controlled by the truth of God's Word, if it's not controlled by the Holy Spirit, and we're actually listening and imbibing the false teaching of the world... You know, we are living in a day when what was said probably at least over a hundred years ago is truer now than it was then. I looked for the world and found it in the church, and I looked for the church and found it in the world. That means that the thinking of many of God's people has become warped by the world. And the result is nothing less than madness. It is absolute madness to bring the world into the church or to put the church smack into the world and thinks, I can get along fine. And I can do what the world does. And I can live like the world lives. And I can be fine. That, brothers and sisters, is insanity. It's crazy thinking. But that's exactly where we are. And I would say that few things so mark the lack of sober-mindedness and spiritual alertness as the lack of prayer that is found among God's people. Nothing so marks the lack of living in the light of eternity as the lack of communion with God among the Lord's people. There was a time when the church... had men, preachers, who were marked. They were known for their prayer lives. You can read about them. Praying Payson of Maine, Edward Payson, father of Elizabeth Prentice, you might know her, stepping heavenward. Today, it seems to be what men are known for is how big their church is. 
how many books they've written, how many followers they have on social media. But men of prayer, And a fellow a couple of weeks ago, older gentleman in my home, and uh, we were discussing about where this generation is and in the church and the ills and the problems. And he was citing more of here's what he's seeing in young people. Here's what he's and he deals with them. He 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 counsels them. He sees this over and over and over again. And I said to him, you know, the real problem is there's a lack of spiritual power. There's a lack of Holy Ghost power in the church. That is the only answer. It's the power of God upon the people of God, upon the preachers of God. But it, 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 is, it, is it any wonder there is this lack of spiritual power when Jesus Christ told his apostles, tarry ye here until ye be endued with power from on high. And that meant tarrying here in this upper room in the place of prayer until you are endued with power. And all the power came. And it turned the world upside down. But how does it come without prayer? How does that come? You see, I don't believe it's it's not really more people that we need it's more power there was only a handful of people in that upper room but they were with one accord in one place and they were doing one thing praying. You promised the Holy Ghost. Send him. Not for one moment do I believe that the church needs more ministries, more seminars, more conferences. What the church needs is the Holy Spirit's anointing. And all of that comes through prayer. It comes through communion with God. And we're not going to have it any other way. I think so often the church is just chasing her tail. 
All these things being substituted, trying to substitute for real spiritual power in the Holy Spirit. But they're empty substitutes. You see, if it is not, if, 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 if all the seminars and conferences and ministries, if it does not end up in producing godly Christians who live separate from this world and live to please the Lord, what is it? What is it at the end of the day? If they're actually, they can go and walk hand in hand with the world, then it's failed in its purpose. It's prayer. What I'm saying is that living in the light of eternity will lead you to the throne of God. It'll lead you into fellowship with God. Not just once in a while, but continually. Prayer, by the way, is in the plural here. Which indicates repeated praying. Characteristic of their life. And it's there. It's there in communion with the Lord that the heart and the mind are renewed and that the spiritual life is refreshed and we are brought back to what's really important in life. What really matters. Living in light of eternity will mean that we maintain fellowship with the Lord. God be pleased to write that word on every heart. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. O our God, we come this day to the throne of an omnipotent creator, the sovereign Lord of all. We acknowledge our need of power. We feel the powerlessness, the lack of power with men, due to a lack of power with thee. Lord, we've been reminded by the Spirit of God this day of how brief our life is. It's soon going to be over. A little time has left us. Help us to buy back the time, we pray. To use the time we have left to rescue it. That it won't be wasted on things that don't matter at the end of the day. Show us each one how that gets applied to our personal lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.